This is the Young Professionals Podcast, proudly brought to you by Adapt Careers, where we speak with young professionals to understand what they do in their roles day to day, how they got there and what they've learned along the way. My name is Luke Marriott. And I am Nicholas Sargent, better known as Sarge. And we are your co-hosts. Sarge, what do our listeners need to do? To stay up to date and support what we're doing, please subscribe, like the episode and leave a comment on any of our social channels. We can't wait to hear from you. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Young Professionals Podcast. Sarge and Luke here again uh, today. Sarge, who are we speaking with? Today, Luke, we're speaking to Saul Wakeman. Saul is a co-founder of the legal tech startup Atticus. Originally, originally from Alice Springs, Saul started his tertiary education journey with a Bachelor of Commerce Arts in Sydney before changing to a Bachelor of Law Arts at Melbourne University. After finishing university, Saul made the decision to become a qualified to become qualified as a teacher, working for Teach for Australia in Shepparton for a few years before eventually moving back to Melbourne and trying his hand at law. Landing a graduate role at Hall and Wilcox, Saul worked in the corporate law team for a couple of years before making another pivot to the entrepreneurial life with his own business. Saul is a big advocate for providing realistic advice to students and encouraging people to think outside the box when considering their career paths. Saul, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sarge. Good to be here. Thanks, Luke. Thanks for coming on. So you are the, a co-founder of the legal tech startup Atticus. What is Atticus and what does Atticus do? Uh, so Atticus is both uh, the name of the business and the name of the piece of software that we provide. But uh, generally, Atticus is helping people collaborate on the review of regulated documents. So a regulated document is something like a prospectus or an annual report, anything that needs to go out in the world and be uh, true and correct and, and not misleading. And so we're helping lawyers, advisors, company secretaries with reviewing these documents and uh, streamlining their processes. And in what uh, spheres would one need to review these documents? Like what, what's a typical driver of needing to, to use Atticus? Yeah, so look, in uh, a lot of law firms use our software. They're, they're probably our main customers at the moment. And for law firms, these, these documents, the, say a prospectus that goes out with an IPO, um, they need to be reviewed in detail because people are going to use them to make investment decisions. And so they actually have a defense under the Corporations Act that allows them to um, say that if we've reviewed it in a detailed way, um, then we are good to go. But basically, before Atticus came along, this was one of the most grueling exercises that a, that a junior lawyer could, uh, could have land on their desk where you got given a 200-page document, a, a ruler and a pencil and say, make sure every statement in this is true and correct and collate all the supporting evidence for it. And so uh, that was something I had to do and, uh, and yeah, I thought this is a little bit ridiculous. Mate, I can attest to having to do the verification process both with and without Atticus and certainly with Atticus is a lot better. <laughs> um, and for anyone who is still unfamiliar with the kind of documents we're talking about or anything like that, think of a 200-page essay that you've written for a university subject and you've got a thousand footnotes and you need to go and find all of the third-party documents that go into those footnotes and make sure that they're all in the right spot and then highlight the relevant sentences in those third-party documents and make sure that they're all there. So having a platform yeah. like Atticus is certainly um, helpful in that respect. Yeah, appreciate it, Luke. Didn't, uh, didn't, <laughs> definitely didn't come on here to, uh, to advertise the product, I can assure, assure oh, you. No, no, I understand <laughs> but, um, that. I just wanted to try but, uh, and paint some. But appreciate yeah. it. And, and also trying to get 30 people 
uh, to collaborate on that review can be yeah. uh, quite the exercise. But um, no, yeah, sure. appreciate yeah. the kind words. Just wanted to put some color around what that process was in case people haven't actually touched on it before because it, yeah. it is certainly quite grueling. Um, mate, do you want to walk us through what your kind of day-to-day role as a, you know, people here, co-founders and, and, and founders mm. of different businesses, particularly tech businesses. Yeah. Um, what does your day look like and, and what are you trying to, trying to do and trying to build with the team? Yeah, great. So look, we're still a small team. Uh, um, I'm really in charge of business development generally. So for us, that's everything from sales, a little bit of marketing, um, and generally keeping customers happy and making sure we're listening to our customers. And so what does that look like day to day? Uh, Day to day, that looks like um, a lot of phone calls with our current customers, uh, understanding what they're up to on the software, how we can help. Um, There's obviously sales, so demoing the software to new law firms or, or company secretaries or investor relations professionals. There is uh, the building the business type work. So interviewing people for roles that we've got out at the moment and, uh, and generally planning where the business is going, whether that's product or um, product or, or what markets we're going to focus on. So it's, it's a, yeah, it's a bit of a hodgepodge of a day to tell you the truth. It's um, it's, I mean, it's why I got into it. The variety is, the variety is really key. Um, but then there's the day-to-day operations. So everything from running the accounts to um, making sure we're tracking a lot of the processes that we're following and uh, yeah, paying bills. But that's, uh, that's the, the broad ambit that, that my day might consist of. You said you spend a lot of time on the phone. When do mm. you find time to actually get some work done? <laughs> that's a good point. I mean, uh, beautifully enough, being on the phone is a lot of my work. And so... Um, yeah, look, time management and, and, and marking out the things that you want to get, uh, get done in a day is obviously a big part of, of achieving certain things. Um, but yeah, look, look, a lot of, and that's partly why I wanted to be in this job is that being on the phone and talking to people is part of the job and getting things done. Mate, for people who, who haven't um, been or interacted with, a, say, a tech business or anyone mm. that is producing software, um, it's a lot more detailed than certainly I, uh, I gathered from, from my kind of high level understanding yeah. of it, but do you want to walk through kind of what your co-founders are doing as well and, yeah. um, what the people that are actually building software, the engineers are doing? Yeah, for sure. So every, every technology business behind the scenes is going to be tracking the feedback that they're getting on their software. So I think any, any good, good technology business is going to be using that as the basis for what they're developing. And there's always a fine line between listening to what your customers are asking for or listening to the problems that you have and then designing the solutions to the problems that they're presenting to. And so for the, for the engineers, a lot of their time is spent building the product or even fixing bugs in the product. I think one of the first things I learned as a non-technical person coming into a technology business is that technology is like software is never perfect. It's this, um, it's, it's this on a spectrum from a, from a house of cards down one end where it's really shoddily built and, and, and one little thing could bring the whole thing crumbling down to very, very securely built that still has unforeseen errors that, that are going to be in there, but generally has a very, very um, strong base and foundation. And so we've always... We've always tried to, to 
engineer Atticus towards the ladder. And so what that has meant is building a strong piece of software from the beginning means that a lot of the time spent now can be on new features and improving the product rather than putting out fires. And so the engineers spend a lot of time looking through our product roadmap and deciding where the priorities are, what customers are asking for, particularly if we've got a large swathe of customers asking for a particular feature or addition to the product. And they're literally building it. And I can tell you, I'm, it's one of the most amazing things that I've found moving into a technology business is the sheer power of what software engineers can do. In a day, they can transform a feature or, or add a feature that literally makes someone's day significantly <laughs> better, uh, saving them 40, 50% time on a task that, that they previously would have to have to. Uh, have a really grueling experience trying to get through. That sounds super impactful, Saul. Um, mm. Keen to understand your journey to Atticus. So you, you're originally from Alice Springs and you decided to make the move initially to Sydney. Do you want to chat yeah. to what making that decision was like and, and why you chose to, to fly the coop? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, the Red Centre, Alice Springs, is where I, where I grew up and uh, I still love the place and, and look forward to visiting it every year. Bit, uh bit restrained this year with the border closures, but we'll get there eventually. Uh, yeah, look, originally was, was, was going to go to Sydney and, and thought that was where a lot of extended family is and so it was a natural fit to go there. I uh, love the beach, uh, which obviously is Sydney. How, how old are you at this stage, man? Uh, 17, so end of high school, 17, 18. But then uh, decided to, to actually come to Melbourne. Um, I've got some family here and, and just made the switch. And to, to tell you the truth, I don't remember a lot of why I swapped degrees. I do remember getting some career advice to just use up every point you get on your ATAR and try and find a degree that, that uses every point. And so that's why I found myself in, in arts law down here. And do you, do you think that was good advice on reflection? No, it's terrible advice. <laughs> <laughs> it was terrible advice. I, I mean, I've got some, I've got some issues as an ATAR as like a, a, a system for, for, um, for assessing competencies coming out of high school. But uh, I think that generally it was, it was pretty bad advice. I mean, I, was, I, I loved science, I loved math, that was uh, economics. They were all my subjects in high school. And I ended up uh, doing arts law because I thought, oh yeah, I'll give that a go. I haven't really done too much humanities. It might be nice to, to dip my toe in the water without realizing that for a lot of people, university is a very vocational pathway. and. Uh, I guess that was probably my naivety, but um, in some ways, I, I mean, I can't, I can't complain now. I mean, I, I wouldn't probably be here in working in, working in a, a technology company in the legal industry had I not gone down that path. But I, I do think I probably would have found a lot of satisfaction if I had followed my gut a little bit more, uh, uh, a little bit more comprehensively and, and thought through what I actually enjoyed doing. Mate, with the uh, issues might be a strong word, but your uh, perspective on, uh, I guess, the weight that people put on ATAR coming out yeah. of high school, what are some issues do you think that can arise with students in terms of stress or, or uh, focusing on uh, other things that can arise out of that importance? And what advice, I guess, would you give students that you know are struggling with people telling them they should be doing X, Y, and Z when they really feel like they should be doing something else? 
Yeah, look, I guess the, the problems with the ATAR are somewhat twofold. I've got some probably some uh, socio-political <laughs> uh, issues with the ATAR as particularly with our kind of secondary education system leading to quite a, a disparity between uh, haves and haves nots coming out of the, the high school system and the ATAR being just such a such a uh, over-indexed um, measure of someone's ability coming out. Um, as much as I've got significant issues with the US system of assessing candidates for universities, I, I think you could say that is generally more holistic um, than, than what we have here in Australia. Um, but now that we're like in a business and, and looking at hiring people, it is interesting looking at people's pathways and where they've, what, what they've achieved. And I think if I, if I thought back at myself at 18 and how I was thinking about things, obviously a lot of my focus was on the, the ATAR and getting what well, was, was it called at the time? It was the, I think it had a different name back when I did it during my age, but um, there was a lot of focus on, on get on, on those numbers when, especially now with the boom of online education and how you can educate yourself and, and really get out there, there is quite an opportunity to literally accelerate your skills in areas of interest without going down that really typical um, pathway that, that the ATAR offers. So I think as an employer now, looking at people's uh, career records, I'm keeping an eye out for really interesting pathways and, and, and journeys that people have taken, even from the, the early days of their careers, to either focus on developing their own skills and, and, and take an interesting kind of experimental approach to how they are developing their skills rather than just following a, a straight line through to a, a vocational path. Would you mind sharing uh, an example of one of those CVs that you've seen that, that demonstrates that diversity of interest and in taking a different pathway? Yeah, look, nothing comes straight to mind. I'd be, I'd be a little bit wary of uh, over-identifying over someone. But um, uh, look, I think, I think one, thing to, one thing to point out is even from, from early days in... Um, I think probably one of the one of the more scary CVs, like so, on the on the opposite side of things, might be um, just a very clear pathway from from high school into uh, university with very little done on the side, and then straight into a, um, a say graduate position at a, a certain institution, and then maybe um, one or two rungs above that within that position. I think there's a lot to obviously a lot to to respect about that, that learning and that dedication towards a single path. Um, but I do think that there is in terms of particularly for, a, for early employees at a startup where you're going to have to wear many hats, you're going to have to feel discomfort in your low information environment. Anyone that's gone straight down a very institutional path of learning, I think may be more inclined to feel too uncomfortable in that environment. Whereas what I might be looking for there is someone that has maybe identified a particular interest. It could be, who knows, like robotics, or it could be in poetry, it could be something like that. And you can see that they followed that to its kind of end of its, the, the end of its line, or they're continuing to follow that. So they might've started in a club and then they've moved along into into producing their own work or they've actually started a small business on the side that, that is, um, 
that is taking their uh, interests and 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 hobby to its nth degree. It's really interesting you say that because last year I shared a conversation with a CFO of an ASX listed company, mm. and he was talking about how when he's hiring, he'd much much prefer to hire a generalist type of person who's worked across a number of different business units. And we, yeah. we were talking about the professional services space. And mm. He was saying like, if you've worked across tax, you worked in a deals team and yeah. maybe worked in another team, he would much prefer to hire that person because they have a diversity of experience versus hiring a subject matter expert. Yeah. Look, I think, I think maybe, a, yeah, maybe a more succinct way of kind of saying what I'm saying is that the, the managing partner at the firm I worked at, uh, Hall and Wilcox, his name's Tony McVean. He's a, he's a fantastic leader and he really grew the firm significantly in the time that I was there and developed a great culture. And he'd, he'd really hammer home the idea of T people. He'd always talk about being a T person where you've, you do have a depth of kind of expertise and interest in one area, but you're an inquisitive person. And so that generally leads you to have a breadth of interests and, and not be afraid of understanding more about other areas. I just want to chime in on that because I got some, I guess, on reflection, probably poor career advice when I was applying for clerkships and grad graduate roles yeah. and stuff. And it was to do with what to put on my cover letter in my cover mm. letter and on my CV. And I had a small business at the time, just yeah. doing stuff on the side at uni and some people that were a lot older than me that worked at law firms before yeah. were saying, don't put that stuff on because they're going to think that you're not interested in law. Yeah, and you, yeah. you're, you're not really focused on, on this being yeah. your career. But yeah. the more I've been in industry, exactly what you've said, people want, yeah. you know, the generalists or the, the more rounded people that have mm. a different view of the world rather than, you know, the legal textbook that you, that you have at, at uni. Um, so, yeah, I think it's great, great advice. Yeah, look, and I think, I think there it's in some ways it's, it might also be a short-sighted view of human resources in that, you're almost saying that uh, as an organization to keep you on as a staff member, you need to be a like lifelong law dedicated kind of person when in fact they probably should do a better job of backing themselves to create a culture and environment that you want to stay in and grow and thrive and embracing your other interests and these, um, these extracurricular type things are actually in their interests as well. And, and I think a lot of organizations, um, if they're taking a long-term view, probably realize that even if you do come into their ambit for three, four years of, the, of your career and they back themselves to keep you for that long, you're going to be productive while you're there. But if they embrace your other interests, that may well come into their community as well. And business can be about a community. And especially if you're starting your own business, I mean, any, any commercial law firm should be looking at anyone within their sphere who is running their own business as a potential client as well. So I think there's like, there's probably just a short sightedness in, in that kind of thinking when in fact every other workplace in the world who's, who's thinking really about developing their staff as humans um, is going to embrace all of those interests and make sure that they're going to, to help them thrive in, in all aspects of their lives. Mate, on that point, let's let's bounce forward to okay. You've started your your arts law degree at, at Melbourne. Do you think that that uh, was a good place for you to thrive as a human and, and develop those skills there? Why don't you walk us through that experience? Uh, walk walk through the experience of um of my arts law degree at Melbourne. Um, well, I'll start with my arts degree because that was kind of fascinating. I, that was media. I actually did media com, which was like a subset of arts at Melbourne at Melbourne Uni, and that was in actually 
that was back in 2006. And I don't know if you remember 2006, but that was uh, the year Facebook came to Australia. And so social media hadn't really boomed yet. Uh, we had MySpace. And so Tom from MySpace. Exactly. I, I, we had Tom from MySpace um, and we had that blaring music that you'd get, you'd set as your default music when you open your MySpace <laughs> account. I think I had a bright yellow background and, and justice waters of Nazareth come blaring through when you open the page. And, and the brutal, my top eight friends. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've forgotten, I've forgotten about that. The top eight friends. Um, so, to tell you the truth, the media comm department was really just trying to grapple with what the internet was doing. And so it was a weird time to be like, to be studying the internet and studying media because it was in a significant state of flux at that point of time. So I, I, I can't quite uh, pinpoint the, the precise things I learned in my media comm degree, but um, it was a bit of fun. Uh, and then law, look, I didn't mind law. I, I really enjoyed the... Um, I think the jurisprudence, the theory, obviously the criminal law stuff, because uh, I love films and I'd watch enough procedural, procedural uh, crime shows to to enjoy the criminal law elements. Um, but look, it didn't, yeah, it didn't really engage me. I think there were like snapshots of engagement that I had, particularly media law, competition law, mainly because it touched on broader socio kind of socio political or socioeconomic type uh, theories and concepts. And so, yeah, look, I was, I was, I, I think on the scale of things, I was pretty disengaged in my uh, law degree. I didn't find the, the, the PowerPoint kind of presentations all that engaging. I really enjoyed the tutorials and the discussions. Um, and I, as, as the pointy end came to be like years kind of three, four and five, as the, the, the school starts to kind of mold you into like a, a funnel for the, the organizations trying to, to get your, uh, to get your skills. They, I, I, I think I disengaged at that point quite significantly and, and wasn't quite sure if it was the path I wanted to go down. So then you decided to engage going to Shepparton and working for teach for Australia. Do you want to yeah. chat through why you chose to do that? Yeah, look, uh, Teach for Australia was a pretty new program at the time. Um, and for anyone who doesn't know what it is, uh, it's quite established now. It's been going for over 10 years. Its first year was 2010. So I think its 10th anniversary is quite recently. And Teach for Australia, basically the, the concept, it, it had some tweaks since I did it, but basically you get six weeks of training over an intensive period over summer. And you do equivalent, I think, of about a third of a master's degree during that time. You basically get, you get very prepped to work in a classroom as a full-time teacher. And then for two years, you work as a full-time teacher. Actually, it's about an 80% load. And then you've got about a 20% load to do your, the continuing your master's or, or postgraduate degree. And so why I, why I went and do it, why I went and did it, as I said, the the socio, uh, the, the issues of educational equity and equality is something that I hold quite dearly. I've already touched on my, some of my views about, about ATAR, I guess. And um, so as an issue, educational uh, equity in Australia was quite close to my heart. And, and I hadn't felt, 
I, coming out of university, I hadn't felt kind of, I guess, significantly challenged, like a, a deep level of discomfort. And I wasn't sure I was going to get that from a graduate program in professional services. And so it stood out as an interesting experiment and challenge. And so it was in its second year. So I think probably now it's less described as an experiment and a pretty clear pathway. But at the time, I, I, I feel like that was part of the attraction for me. And if I if I'd loved being a teacher and really thrived in that environment, then fantastic. I found a, a great pathway to go down. So it was it was win-win in that respect. And just on that, the challenge point, what's it like standing in front of a, a class of, say, 30 students and trying to explain a concept that they probably have no idea what you're talking about? Yeah, terrifying. <laughs> terrifying. I remember my first, my first uh, day of teaching was a Friday um, and I think I had double year nine geography, double year 11 legal studies. So that's three hours effectively of teaching uh, my first two classes and quite different, obviously quite different age groups there as well, different subject matters. Uh, year nine geography, we were doing, uh, I want to remember, I think it was tectonic plates and, and volcanoes and, and things like that. And earthquakes and year 11 legal was unit one, which must've been, you guys might remember legal study. I didn't actually do legal study. Introduction to the legal system. Yeah. Introduction to the system. That's right. Um, just itching to get onto criminal law because that was the more <laughs> engaging content. Mate, on the Teacher Australia, a bit of research yeah. um, shows that it's quite a rigorous uh, mm. recruitment process. Yeah. Do you want to walk us through what that was like and kind of the people that they're trying to get on board and why mm. you were able to to get in there? Yeah, look, and actually uh, one step in my career, which uh, we kind of skipped over a little, is actually after I finished teaching in Shepherd and I actually did come back and work in the Teach for Australia office for, um, for a little while in their recruitment and selection. So I've actually got, I was on the other side of that process as well. Um, you're right, it is very rigorous. It's probably changed slightly from when I did it, but at the time it was uh, like an online application and then a phone interview and then a selection day. And a selection day involved... Uh, two individual interviews, a group problem-solving exercise, and a sample lesson, a seven-minute sample lesson. It's probably quite similar now, I, I suspect, um, and it is it is very rigorous. And look, I think part of the beauty of the Teach for Australia uh, recruitment and selection program is that if you don't get through, it's highly likely you wouldn't have wanted to get through anyway because as you've just, uh, as you asked, I think, Sarge, you would be in front of a bunch of 25 year nines and you wouldn't have the skills to be able to do it. And so a lot of that, that, that recruitment and selection program is very targeted on, I think it's eight competencies and each of the stages are very focused on assessing those competencies. And they don't just let in a group each year. They don't try and find a certain number. They'll only let through people who meet a threshold on those certain competencies and so you can be sure that if you uh if you don't make it through you get quite good feedback on on what skills you didn't get through uh but you wouldn't have wanted to be in front of a classroom if you weren't ready because it's it is pretty grueling. do you want to just touch on with the teach for australia before we get, get into when you worked in their office mm. um 
can you just describe why it was why you ended up in Shepparton and are they yeah. more regionally focused rather than mm. in cities and maybe talk to that experience of um you know moving away from where you live for a couple of yeah. years and, and how that was a good challenge and, and what you learned from that yeah so one thing i may have glossed over there as part of the teacher australia program is that you're actually being placed in uh for want of a better term disadvantaged high schools so these are high schools that meet a um a low level of socioeconomic uh, or meet a high level of socioeconomic disadvantage. So they are below it. It's, it's called an ICSIA number. I think it's a more holistic assessment, but it's a, it's a certain number that assesses the, the demographics of the community. And so uh, that does include a lot of rural and regional places. I mean, Teach for Australia now places everywhere from like remote WA to remote NT um, up until like up to really CBD Melbourne or like outer suburbs Melbourne so it's quite a broad range there um, the placement process is a bit a bit part art part science so they're looking for where you you're uh, you're going to be teaching the subjects that you studied at your kind of undergraduate or your your expertise level and so it's about matching you with a school that is looking for those those learning areas um, so I ended up in Shepparton uh, at Shepparton High School. Uh, I'd never been to Shepparton. I moved there the, the day before kind of things kicked off, which in hindsight wasn't, wasn't a great decision. I probably should have gone and, and, and got to know the community a little bit more before I moved there. But I did go and visit it and, and made sure that it was a, um, it was a, a good fit for me before I, before I committed to it. But, yeah, look, I moved up there on the Sunday, started work on the Monday and spent two years there. Uh, Shepparton's a pretty amazing place. It's a very, very diverse community. Uh, my classroom had amazing mix of students from, there was an interesting mix of um, really strong diasporic communities that have obviously developed their communities in Shepparton for a long time. And then really, really new, newly migrated refugees, um, a strong indigenous community there. So it was, it was a fantastic place to, to teach, particularly to teach humanities. There's a, there's a point there in terms of working in regional centers that we spoke to another um, guest on the podcast who's a chiropractor working in Catherine now. And mm. one of the things that he spoke about was that when you are in these regional towns, you become such a part of the fabric of what it means to be in that community and, and you're providing such a, um, a good service. Was that something that was really fulfilling? I, I would imagine so. Yeah, I think so. I, I think it really allowed me to, to focus on what I was doing there. Um, and to, to not be distracted. I think if, I, if I'd been in Melbourne and in the living in Fitzroy and, and driving out to my school in the outer suburbs that I was teaching at, I would have had a, a very kind of bifurcated life where I would have had my life out there at work, detached from the community and then coming back to my home. Whereas there I was in the community and seeing my students every day and understanding more about the 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 lives that they were living. So I, th I think there was definitely uh, an advantage there that allowed me to kind of have a, have a richer understanding of the, the context that I was, I was working in. From, from the community at Shepparton, you then chose to move back to the community at Hall and Wilcox in the, in the corporate team. Yeah. Uh, what was the driver there and what was working in that, in the corporate team at Hall and Wilcox like? Yeah. Look, to, to answer your first question, I, f I think I feel pretty comfortable saying this now. Like I, I was a bit lost. I, did, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I'd, I'd, 
I'd liked teaching. I hadn't loved it. It hadn't kind of really engaged me and made me go, yep, this is definitely a profession I want to follow. And I, I definitely check the significant amount of privilege that I had in being able to say, well, I wonder what else I can do. There's, there's, that, that's an incredible opportunity. And so I definitely don't disregard that. But um, yeah, look, I was just a little bit lost. And I, I having, having done the law degree, I thought, well, maybe, maybe there is something in there and maybe it is worth giving it a go. And I'd heard fantastic things about the, the people and the culture at Hall and Wilcox. And so for me, it was uh, a good landing place to say, let's, let's give this a go. And so I did the, the general kind of graduate rotation and then found the corporate team to be the one that felt like the best fit at the time. There was um, quite a lot of variety in the things that you do there, everything from kind of commercial contracting through to transactional deal-based work. Um, and so that's why I decided to settle in, in that team and, and settle there for, for two years before leaving. But just on, on your path into Hall and Wilcox, mm. Cox, we've spoken to a couple of people who have gone through the clerkship pro, uh, programs yeah. and the and the grad programs, yeah. and I've been through it myself. Was that the way that you got in there, or yeah. how how yeah. did that work? Yeah, so I did a clerkship. So I, I took actually I actually took leave when I was working at Teacher Australia to to do a clerkship. I think Teacher Australia probably recognised that I wasn't wanting to kind of continue my career path there, and so they were very open for me to 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 do that. Um, and so I, yeah, I did a, I did a clerkship while I was there just to, to get a taste and see if I liked it. And, and there were elements of it that I really, I really did love. Um, I actually, did, um, quite a bit of advice work, which kind of for me at the time was like, Oh, that's interesting. It's kind of like writing a, writing an essay and doing research. I can, I can get around that. And so, uh, yeah, I did a clerkship and then applied for the grad program and, and went through it that way. And what was what was it like being a bit more of a mature age recruit in the clerkship process? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I saw myself as the the father of the team. No, I'm, I'm joking. Uh, I didn't at all. Um, no, I think the one thing maybe that that um, that I felt was I I'd already gone down that kind of that awakening of my first professional job. So as a teacher, I had a boss, I had been given tasks to do, I had responsibilities, I had to plan my day. So a lot of those things that were like the, the, the general kind of I'm a professional now type learnings, I'd already gone through. So a lot of that wasn't, I wasn't trying to grapple that with that at the same time as trying to work out what the hell to do as a lawyer. And so that made it a bit easier without a doubt. Um, that's something we're keen to explore quite a bit on this podcast. And it's the kind of balance of getting real world experience before you dive straight into a career that is, uh, following your say university degree. Um, do you think that you were better equipped than graduates coming straight out of uni into a, into a law graduate program, having worked in, you know, some, some regional towns and in some tough environments, moving out of home, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, I think one answer might be you're comfortable with a certain level of discomfort. So you're just, you're okay being in a, in a low information kind of uncomfortable position where you're like, yeah, there are some stressful things here, but I'm going to be able to resolve and I'm confident enough that I've been in enough situations that this is, this is going to be okay. And I think if you haven't had a lot of exposure to that, then 
potentially once you're in that environment, particularly if you've gone a very institutional path into that, where institutions are fantastic at like driving you towards a certain skill and learning, but they're not always great at giving you the opportunity to, to find your own way out of an uncomfortable situation. And so I think exposure to different people, exposure to different experience, a hell of a lot of responsibility, particularly teaching, teaching over, over 130 students in each term, that is, that is, a, that is a lot to kind of, uh, there are a lot of experiences within that that are going to make you um, develop the kind of muscle memory, for want of a better analogy, to find a comfortable path and not be overwhelmed with the stress of not knowing what to do. On, on that, I guess some targeted advice maybe for someone, not, not just in law, but in any, mm. uh, I guess, uh, a degree or, or yeah. uh, education journey, what would you say to them if they're you know, 18 or 19 looking to you know, maybe work at a cafe or something, which yeah. is not a bad job, but are there yeah. some other more challenging experiences that you would really push them to explore? Um, I think generally just say, like challenge yourself, see, see what you're capable of. You've got the opportunities to do that. Um, and, and working in a cafe in like customer service and those things, of course, they are going to be experiences are going to be helpful, but I mean, push yourself to go even further. You're going to be managing a cafe. You're going to be managing events. So you're going to realize that you're particularly good at that thing. You're going to start your own events company. There are things that you, you can push yourself further and further. Are there things that you think about that where I think one of the things that we, we focus along as a teacher was, um, was the difference between fixed and growth mindsets and particularly for, particularly for a lot of students. And, and one of the saddest things is, and, and, and even in um, particularly around maths and sciences, a lot of students will start framing themselves. And, and even in early high school, it's like maths people or English people. And, They'll say, I'm not a maths person. You, you hear signs of kind of fixed mindsets around that. And I think that it can pay to, to have that at the, at the front or the back of your mind or front of mind, wherever, you, wherever you're wanting to store it. Um, <laughs> when you're thinking about challenging yourself is thinking about those things where you'll go, I'm not a such and such person I'm, or this isn't, this isn't me and really challenge yourself on that because I think if you've created a, a, a fixed mindset about one of those things, it's highly likely you haven't done enough testing in that realm to really work out if it isn't something that you're either interested in or particularly good at or could get by and not have a problem with. And so I think when, when you're thinking about challenging yourself and, and really uh, thinking about where you might develop yourself, is thinking about those parts of your life where you're saying, I'm not of this type of person and, and finding out whether that is actually the case. On that, so you've clearly had quite a growth mindset going through Teach for Australia, going through Hall and Wilcox and being involved in the recruiting side of Teach for Australia as well. How have all those experiences helped you in your role now at Atticus? Yeah, look, uh, I think, I mean, I, I think it's, um, uh, in some ways, what is it, cup before the horse or, or chicken before the egg? Um, part of the reason I wanted to to go into Atticus and join Atticus is because I, I enjoy having that the diversity of skills being drawn on day to day, uh, and so I like I like the variety of my day, and I like that each day all of those skills kind of come into play when I, whether I'm doing software demos or training, 
Um, I'm thinking about what it was like having 25 year nines instead I've got 30, uh, 30 lawyers. Uh, and so uh, everything from that to um, uh, obviously I'm doing legal contracting as part of my job as well. Um, and then, and then the hiring stuff, it's interesting now being, being my own business and, and working with, with Misha and Mitchell to, to build the team and thinking about the kind of skills that we want to bring in the team, how we assess those skills. There's, um, there's a, yeah, there's, there's a lot of learning still to go, but part of the, part of the reason I got into this is that all of those skills seem to fit quite well being a, uh, a generalist within a, a growing business. Um, we, we spoke, it's really interesting. You, you talk about benefiting from all those experiences. We, we've spoken to someone else who talked about, uh, approaching your role, not only from the perspective of, okay, I'm an employee, but building their own personal capital. Yeah. Do you, do you have a particular view as to, uh, a, a approaching work in that respect? Their personal capital. I mean, I mean, I wish I had a more sophisticated, um, understanding of Karl Marx to, to respond to someone building their own personal capital. Um, but I don't, uh, uh, let me have a think. So, so their, their point was that you're, you're thinking about the skills that you're developing as a form of capital that you can then realize in the employment market. Yeah, correct. Or how they yeah. can leverage it for themselves. So for example, you at teach for Australia in the recruiting sphere, whether or not you meant it, you got the recruiting skills and now you get to leverage them at Atticus. Yeah, look, I think I think probably another way. I, I'd probably agree with that. I'd probably frame it more around um, about seizing opportunities to learn. So you are you may well be in a law firm environment practicing as a corporate lawyer, and you might sit there and do the tasks that you are assigned to do and do them well. There are plenty of other opportunities to learn in that environment, certain other skills, certain other areas of law, as we've alluded to earlier, the CFO's advice. There are opportunities within each environment that you're in to learn more than just the discrete task that you're given. And so obviously it's important to do those well. But if you're in each environment, while you're there, you may as well kind of explore the, the, the ends of all of the opportunities that are in that environment. And so I think I think that's probably how I'd frame it. I think it probably matches matches reasonably well with with that personal capital because you never know when when those opportunities might come up. I mean, one of the things I was doing at Hall and Wilcox was they had a um, they had a uh, an art program where we'd run these uh, art uh, art gallery exhibitions for for clients and and community and. I did that in the first instance because I like art and I thought it'd be good to be involved in. And then more and more you're being involved in kind of event management and running, <laughs> running a, um, a, a, an art show. And who knows if that ever comes up in my life again, it may well, um, who knows, maybe Atticus needs to run an activation of some sort and, and understanding how that develops may well be an advantage. You just never know. I think so in those, in those, environments that you're in if you take the opportunities that are there or are active in finding opportunities to learn a variety of things you just never know when they're going to come up i'll just add to that 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 is fantastic advice that can lead into anyone's part-time job like i i remember trying to do that when i was working at a restaurant and you know i, I was there as the barista making coffees but then yeah. i thought oh i need to learn how to 
carry plates and take orders. And then I was eventually yeah. able to become floor staff and that led to a catering job that paid twice as much and exactly. kind of doing all that kind of stuff where you can really leverage every opportunity, but it's about taking the initiative to, initiative to be like, hold on, there's other jobs that happen here where I'm working. Yeah. I need to learn how to also do them in, in, as much as you can. I think so. I think it's a probably a better articulation of, of the point I was trying to make earlier about looking for that discomfort in any environment and challenging yourself. It's probably better advice to say, look for any opportunity to learn. And it's, it's the same advice really um, is don't, don't be satisfied with just sitting back on precisely the thing that you've been tasked to do. Think, think more uh, with a, with a, with a more expansive kind of opportunity lens for, for one of a, a less Harvard business review type term. Well, mate, on that, I think we, we've touched on a lot of really interesting stuff so far and a, a nice place that we like to leave uh, the listeners with, uh, with, with some guests is if you yeah. can, um, I guess, tell, tell anyone uh, something on maybe a billboard or a, or a poster that, get, that gets put around, the, put around the traps, what would, you, uh, what would you put on there maybe targeted at students that are coming through um, high school or university, particularly now in such a kind of tough um, environment for students? I mean, I think, I think one of the things that I find most difficult about this is that for, especially having spoken to a lot of students in my time is that for a lot of, for a lot of them, it's very specific advice about things that they could do to kind of improve their opportunities, whether it is um, reflect, reflect more deeply on, on what they want um, or whether it is to talk themselves up more in, in environments when they, when they should be there. It's very often been quite specific advice on the individual. Um, I'm trying to think of more general advice there. I mean, I think, I think what I was saying earlier about like finding opportunities to learn being the key is really, is really probably something that, that applies to most people in this circumstance and even people who are three, four years into their, their professional career and maybe feeling a little bit unsatisfied. Um, there is so much opportunity right now to, to do your own learning. And, and of course that is subject to the intensity of uh, the intensity of, of making sure you've got enough money to put food on the table and then a roof to go over your head. Sure. Like learning isn't learning shouldn't just be uh, an opportunity for those privileged enough to have the time to do it. But I do think we are in a world now where there is, a lot of opportunity regardless of your circumstance to be able to to do that. Well, so just want to say thanks for coming on the show today, mate. It's been awesome to hear about your career journey so far and we look yeah. forward to seeing uh, where Atticus goes and, and what happens next. No worries at all, guys. Thanks. I really, uh, really appreciate the opportunity and to, uh, to everyone out there who's trying to work out what the hell to do with their lives. Um, there's plenty of time. You've got the time to take a step back and think. So. So reflect a, reflect a little bit more and, and, and don't rush into certain, uh, certain pathways because it seems like it's the only path to follow. I think that, that's our billboard. Stop. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a pretty good billboard to me. <laughs> yeah, stop and reflect. That's probably, that's probably a pretty key piece of advice. I do think that from, from a lot of professionals I've seen in my time, it is, it is the, the point of unhappiness comes when they've, got to a point that they haven't yet stopped and reflected and and thought about where they've got to and 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 really worked out where that unhappiness is coming from or that lack of satisfaction and so if you're doing that from the very 
the very early days in your career, I think you'll be in good stead to know when it's time to to move on or pivot and, and find a path that's more satisfying. Oh, I think everyone should should listen to that and, and yeah. take that on board and and put it into practice for sure. I certainly probably need to do that a little bit more as well. Um, mate, thanks very much for, for taking the time. Uh, we really appreciate it. And I think there'll be a lot of uh, good points there for, for ev- people of all different ages to take away. So uh, thanks again. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you have a profession you would like to know more about, a question you would like us to ask, or a story you would like to tell, please reach out to us on the social channels at either the Young Professionals Podcast, TYPPAU, or our personal profiles. We'd love to hear from you.